0: Sixteen presents.
1: everyone to another episode of the music and photography podcast i'm billy sanford and on this episode i'm delighted to be joined by andre dominguez hi andre
0: how's it going billy thank you for having me
1: thank you so much for making some time for me
0: Of course. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I will admit to originally being very surprised that you reached out saying, (laughs) I have nothing to talk about music. What was he reaching out to me for?
1: (laughs) Well, no, this is actually some good foreshadowing because you have sent me some notes and a playlist. And this is going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. Wonderful. But first, I guess I would say about a year ago, you and I swapped prints and the one that you sent me was a photograph that you made of a jazz musician and it came along with a nice little typewritten note and you know all of these things collectively are a great jumping off point because i kind of want to talk about all of these things the music the printing artwork and the kind of the typewriter mentality i guess and so we'll touch on sort of things related to all of that. <laughs> but I thought maybe we would start at the beginning in in Brazil, and you've talked a little bit about this on negative positives. I mean, paint a little bit of a picture for us about growing up there.
0: Sure. So to say I I, I grew up there is is somewhat of an exaggeration. Right. Um, my my dad's a civil engineer, and pretty much the whole family would move around anytime that he was working on a new project. So I was born there, but we had already moved to the U.S. by the time I was two months old. I okay. went back, you know, at least once a year, usually two or three times a year for Christmas, birthdays, and things like that. So it was always there, but... Right. I've never actually spent time living there. But uh, yeah, having that, you know, be a a huge part of my life, one of the things that I kind of tell people as my version of an excuse to not knowing some popular artists or bands or songs is, oh, well, I spent the first like 14, 15 years of my life listening to the same 75 odd Brazilian bossa nova and samba classics before i i learned anything about western music (laughs) which is not too too far from the truth
1: (laughs) right Um, right
0: you know it, it wasn't that you know we didn't listen to any music from outside of brazil but my music listening history was obviously as a child extremely influenced by what my parents were putting on and when we were at home it was brazilian music only I don't think that they had any CDs or anything of non-Brazilian music. The radio existed in the car, and like we heard music playing on the speakers at the mall and stuff like that in the supermarket. But the vast majority of what we listened to was Brazilian samba and bossa nova. And if you know anything about Brazilian popular music from the 50s onwards, it's much more acceptable in that culture and in that sort of time period to have artists who the majority of what they perform are covers of the classics Mm -hmm. like of course there are you know cover bands here in in the u.s um, and, and covers are a thing that happens but it's not nearly as common here as it is there a lot of times, and, and I'm sure that it's a little bit different now, but I'm I'm kind of stuck in, uh, <laughs> in in the time period of, of what my parents listened to. But at least for that time period, it was very, very common for you to get your start as a musician by, you know, putting out competent covers of the classics. And then once people sort of knew like, hey, that cat can sing, you'd then start. You know composing some of your own songs so again that 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 feeds into the whole thing of it was mostly that music and it was mostly about 75 to 100 songs uh just on repeat from different artists (laughs) Uh, which is a very interesting you know way to kind of start your your musical journey I, i remember by the time i was in middle school when we had moved to the united arab emirates I really did feel musically illiterate, talking to some friends and you know going to sleepovers and things like that, and just being like, "Who's this?" And they're like, "Uh, that's the Beatles." <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I and I honestly didn't know. So <laughs> the rest of my life has kind of been a uh, you know the the re-education of Andre Dominguez. is
1: one of the tracks that you sent over ahead of time. Was from and, and apologies if I don't get the pronunciation exactly right, but Joao Gilberto. Yep, is that close? Yeah,
0: Joao Gilberto. It, yeah, pretty close.
1: And he is pretty much a legend in oh, yeah. Bossa Nova.
0: He, he's considered like the architect of the of the genre, more or less. Um, wrote, you know, helped compose and write most of the of the songs that that people outside of the u.s would would know uh the girl from ipanema among many many others yeah just a pretty cool cat
1: yeah well just to give the listeners a sort of a and that's that was a good reference the girl from ipanema that's the song i think you know if if people are going to be familiar that's one Probably that they could look into or already be familiar with.
0: Helps when we we put out a a massively popular version dubbed into English. <laughs> <laughs> right, that, that's happened once or twice in the history of uh, of, of Bosanova. You're welcome for that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so this is the first area where I'm going to tie the the print that you sent me because you mentioned when you were in school you had to take an art class. And so you attended various jazz concerts or Latin jazz sort of, I, well, you know, why don't you describe it? Talk some <laughs> about this, uh, this course and some of the uh, events that you attended as a result of it.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So one of the struggles I would say of my transition back to the US after about 10 years abroad, With my family, was that all the classes that I took in my IB diploma program in the American International Schools that I went to in Portugal and Venezuela didn't really do me a whole lot of help in terms of college credits. Because despite the fact that I had those under my belt, UNC, uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, was not great at accepting those credits. Mm. So I couldn't quite jump right into some of my major required courses for the business school as I would have liked and had to take all the general education, you know, requirements that most of my peers were able to skip because of high school AP credits. So one of those was an art credit. And back then I was not yet into film photography. Really my interest in photography was just in its infancy having been given uh, my first smartphone, as a high school graduation gift with a camera on it, massive upgrade from a from a flip phone back then.
1: <laughs> right. And
0: uh, for the art credit that I wanted, knowing that I couldn't draw for shit or paint, um, never wanted to be in And after being forced to do that for years and not being able to really carry a tune, uh, I picked uh, a, a music-related class, which was Intro to Jazz. The way that the class was sort of set up was half ethnomusicology, half music theory. I didn't have any, you know, desire really to learn how to play anything, but I thought, you know what, bossa Nova's kind of Brazil's fusion of of uh, jazz and samba. Let me let me give that a shot, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, the the professor that we had was just such a bright and engaging person, we we had to go to at least 15 different uh, live performances and, and take notes about, you know, anything that we found interesting, make connections to what we were learning in class, there's a vibrant chapter that we had to do a couple weeks on, on um, sort of uh, the exportation of some of these musical ideas, and I sort of honed in on the on the Latin jazz side of thing um, over in, you know, Cuba, the Caribbean. And then of course, Brazil wrote a little project on uh, the Stan Getz and João Gilberto kind of collaboration album, which is a great album, by the way. Uh, I I think if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, it's just Getz forward slash Gilberto. What a great album to just put on in the background while you're relaxing.
1: Absolutely. And I will put that in the show notes as well.
0: Oh yeah. How does that, how does that work? Do you, do you put uh you know, can I send over songs later to put into the show notes or a playlist Absolutely. for each episode? What do we, what do we do here?
1: It's a mixed bag, but certainly anything you reference that you think uh, would be of interest to the listeners. I'm, I'm happy to include that. Sounds good. As you mentioned, you did a good amount of, traveling to a lot of different areas and then you find yourself in this college course that has at least a flavor of different influences did you at that time kind of think about the different places you had lived and kind of how they embrace music and what it means to them in different parts of the world or are reflecting on it now what are kind of your takeaways some of your takeaways
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were definitely times after taking that class, having put sort of my my mind into that position of trying to figure out, okay, well, what are the influences of this? Where have I seen or heard elements of this in other areas of my life Has has been something that I've really enjoyed having that new perspective on. Of course, you know, people can do that by just keeping an open mind and an open ear. But I think for me, I think I really needed having that being spelled out in an academic sense, being forced to actually listen intently and, and do homework assignments for it. I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore now, but I'm, <laughs> I I still try to kind of implement some of, of those things. I'm still quite terrible at musical theory. I struggle a lot with trying to figure out what time signatures are, but just trying to make certain kind of rhythmic or melodic DNA-like connections between things these days is a lot of fun. Um, You know, coming from Latin America and coming from the the Portuguese-speaking world, I was able to then kind of reflect like, oh yeah, I kind of see where some of the like traditional Portuguese things that happen in one of their very popular genres called Fado had some influence on some of the Brazilian music that I listened to. And you mix that with a little bit of African rhythmic sensibilities coming from uh, the state of Bahia and you end up with something like Sama, the same way that, you know, you, you incorporate some of those West African uh, rhythms in to the south and you end up with with blues and and jazz. Yeah, it's just it's it's been a fascinating journey to kind of think a little bit more critically through that while also being able to shut my brain off and just relax and enjoy the music. Right. <laughs> I don't always want to be in an analytical mood when I'm listening to music and I'm thankful that like I would I would absolutely hate to have like perfect pitch or anything. To just or just be one of those kind of music savants that see music in colors and aren't able to shut that off.
1: <laughs> right. No, I get I that. Kind of shut me right off. For sure. And to your point, all of those genres that you mentioned do have like a really strong, I think, cultural tie to them. I might throw like folk or Americana into the mix as well just you know you get the sense that the music is you know it's coming from somewhere deep inside the people and the lives they lived and and where they live and kind of the struggles and successes maybe that they've experienced so it's very moving definitely you've kind of touched on maybe your parents didn't have an extremely wide range of musical selection (laughs) Back, back uh,
0: then, they've gotten better, but I, I think it was largely me and my sister being like, hey, can we show you some things that we've been listening to? <laughs> uh, but back yeah. then, it was very much like, hey, our roof, our rules when it comes to the music.
1: <laughs> right. So <laughs> what what about your maybe slightly extended family? Were there, and and you know, we don't have to get deep into the photography yet, but were, were there people in your family that were either played musical instruments or were there people interested in photography in your close family or extended family
0: um extended family a few yeah i've got some like cousins and uncles and things that play uh, mostly mostly guitar and and sing but again I, i don't know if it's just my family i also that's something that i'm always I try to be cognizant of the fact that there may be some things that I associate with Brazil that I think apply to the entire country, but are really just very potentially uh, hyper local to my hometown or just habits of my of my extended family. But again, it was it was that same thing of the classics or what were played around um, the living room after family gatherings and barbecues and stuff like that nowadays i mean granted it's been about six seven years since i've been back to brazil combination of pandemic and summers being occupied by internships during college i'm actually heading back there in november for my sister's wedding but i I remember even in in more recent years members of my extended family have been listening a lot more to music from outside the u.s with the proliferation of things like Spotify and YouTube and things like that. I think their doors have been opened a lot more to stuff like that.
1: Right. Okay. The other thing you mentioned, which I think is a pretty common story, especially for several of the people I've talked to during this series when we're young and you know gutterman was an example of this i think one of the reasons he started playing guitar when he was young was that you know he wanted there were girls he wanted to impress and there were uh other people i've talked to as well and maybe it didn't lead you to pick up a guitar but certainly girls you were interested in helped shape your musical taste as well
0: you know it's a it's a tale as old as time i'm i'm uh, no different <laughs> than any other uh you know, red-blooded American male, and in terms of of that, you know, being a being a good Catholic boy, who although <laughs> some elements of Brazilian music are very not Catholic, right? Um, <laughs> it it definitely was an interesting thing to be kind of introduced to the the broad umbrellas of uh, rock, um, pop punk, and metal in middle school by some of the classmates that I had crushes on. And it's funny how at the very beginning I had exactly the same reaction to it that my parents I think largely still have to this day of like man this is just aggressive angry music like <laughs> why are the drums so fast why do the guitars sound like that I don't know if I like this but you know when when you're when you're dedicated and you have a goal it's like well if she likes it I'm going to like it god damn it <laughs> push through and <laughs> As with almost everything that I initially said musically like oh I don't really know if I'm a huge fan of this I don't know if I like this exposure therapy is the best you know way to to get out of those more negative feelings there's still genres of music that I'm I'm not the fondest of but I don't like having that mindset of I know that I don't like this right now because I'm not familiar enough with it I don't want to dislike something out of ignorance. I would prefer to dislike something out of understanding it well enough to know that it's interesting and has value, but it's just not for me. And that's how I started with... With rock, and it didn't it didn't uh, help tremendously that some of the things that these girls were listening to were pretty heavy, some harsh vocals that took a lot of uh, exposure and a lot of training for me to start discerning some of the of the nuances, um, and also just you know feelings of anger and angst that I didn't really share at the time. I'm, I'm I think I was pretty lucky to have a uh, very loving family, a stable home and community. I didn't really have a whole lot of angst uh, at right. that time. So to kind of have to put myself in 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 those shoes was a little tricky. I didn't re- I wasn't really railing against the man or or anything <laughs> like that as a pretty privileged middle schooler living abroad. So, you know, it it took a little while, but I I mean these days Even though my my tastes are pretty varied, I would say that things within the broad umbrella of rock occupy, you know, at least 60 to 70% of what I regularly listen to. So, hey, you know, it it worked. Uh, Never helped me get a girlfriend, but it worked.
1: (laughs) My story is pretty similar. When I was growing up, every Sunday on the radio, they would do, you know, Casey Kasem's Top 40. And it was just the countdown of, I guess, what was the most played records on the radio that week. Or that's the general idea. I don't know the exact criteria. Popular music in general, right, is watered down to some people's tastes, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, to be popular. It's not going to be edgy or uh, ruffle a bunch of feathers or whatever. And so that was sort of my story. I mean, this is that's what you know, we did have the radio playing in the house and it would be playing that kind of music. And so, you know, when I got to high school, that was sort of the music I had collected up to that point was all sort of middle of the road, popular kind of stuff. Of course, this was at the time of MTV too. So it was your Michael Jackson.
0: back back when they played music on it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right.
0: I've only heard the tales, Billy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh well, that's right. You you didn't get to enjoy that uh, nope. period of bliss in our in our history. So anyway, a, at some point, I got interested in this girl that was working at the mu- at a, at the local music store in the mall, and of course, she had much more exotic, by my viewpoint tastes and was listening to all of these punk bands and stuff like that so you know all of that to say that i i can relate at least on that level where you know your interest in someone can certainly broaden your horizons i think
0: oh yeah it's funny that you kind of you know mentioned on like the big p word of, of popular something that gutterman and i have talked a lot about mike gutterman my 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 best friend my 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 ride or die my um, <laughs> padre oh captain my captain uh mr mike gutterman of the negative positives podcast he'll he'll enjoy uh, you know all, all those titles um uh, right. <laughs> we, talk a lot about, we talk a lot about you know what is popular and reflecting on things i'm a handful of years older than his his two sons so it's cool to kind of compare our different, uh, you know, experiences in these different generations. And one of the things that him and I sometimes, when we're in not the best of moods, kind of bemoan a little bit, is uh, the fact that you know rock music doesn't really hold the same place in society as it once did. I think, especially in the '90s, when when Gutterman was kind of uh, grown up. You know, we, we we do still have many new and up and coming bands, but not as many as I think that we would like. And and the youth, you know, when, when he looks at his kids, he, he can say with confidence that the the music of their generation is not largely guitar, bass and drums focused. Not that that's a, necessarily a, a bad thing, but <laughs> I think, you know, he would be happier if guitar, bass, and, and drums, and, and some of those kind of shared stylistic elements of of rock music played a bigger part in the music that his sons listened to, uh, and right. I, I can somewhat relate to that. If there is a countercultural bone in my body, it's in the sort of very, very soft angst I feel at not being able to enjoy the majority, not, not enjoyed, but like wanting to play something in the car when I'm with my friends and uh, knowing that nobody's really going to enjoy it. So I just, I I hand over, well, now it's not even hand over the aux cord. It's really just, all right, one of y'all Bluetooth connect to my car and pick whatever you want. (laughs) I'm not going to subject you guys to my weird, you know, Scandinavian symphonic metal or (laughs) Mongolian throat singing with distorted guitars.
1: (laughs) Well, that is the perfect segue and you kind of touched on it, but I was going to say, you know, kind of more current day, you know, we've talked about the past and growing up, but more current day, you are living in LA, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a huge city with all, I'm sure plenty of cultural influences as well what do you use today to find new music that you might be interested in is it spotify whatever gets recommended or just having friends and family all around the globe or all of these things how do, how do you come on new music these days um,
0: I i find it hard you know i think that for me finding new music has always been a very active thing Although I have like this Shazam app, which like God bless whoever came up with (laughs) with that thing. It's wonderful. I don't happen to use it all that often because when I'm out and about, you know, the kind of music that I really love to listen to is not typically playing on the on the speakers. But I do use that somewhat, you know, talking to to friends and kind of sharing what I like and getting recommendations from people. But most of the time it does have to be a little bit intentional. Spotify helps. Recommended playlists help. But honestly, the thing in the past few years that has helped me find the most new music is really YouTube. I've noticed a couple of really interesting trends, one of which being the proliferation of, you know, reaction-based YouTube channels, which they have in any kind of genre of content that you could Think, but specifically on like the music reaction things. I've watched a lot of that, and the algorithm has then fed a lot of that back to me. I would say maybe 50% of those channels are sort of vocal coach slash singing teacher reacts to X, and the other half is just, you know, regular Joes and Janes. But there must be something, again, either about the algorithm or the kinds of people who enjoy those types of videos, myself included, now, where you'll you'll notice patterns of, you know, artists that people want to hear the next new up and coming reaction YouTuber listening to 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 see their reaction, right? The the more right. exciting and dynamic the reaction, uh, the more entertaining the video, the more views, blah blah blah. So, uh, one of the things that that is very popular among these things is. Very kind of sweet looking and sounding female uh, fronted rock or rock adjacent metal metal adjacent bands who start off with clean vocals and then transition to very unexpected harsh vocals. a la spirit box or uh, ginger, number of these kinds of of bands and always just causes the reactor's jaws to you know drop to the floor when uh, when some harsh vocals come out of seemingly nowhere. And and then just that kind of, that mill starts turning, you know? The person listens to one song where they're like, okay, you know, the harsh stuff was kind of a lot, but let me continue to dip my toes a little further, start getting into, gosh, I don't know, some tools, some Nightwish, just meandering along some of the, the, the more uh, eccentric and diverse areas of rock not just kind of like your your classic sort of dad rock things that i I think are more likely to help particularly women and young people get into it rather than you know dudes is what i've tended to find just looking at like the comments section and kind of being able to parse out little details of who's who's listening to these kinds of things And um, I think that's, you know, demonstrated in terms of the amount of young women that are into bands like Deftones and Tool and things on, based on, on, on TikTok.
1: Um,
0: That whole world of, you know, a, a tiny, seemingly insignificant clip using, you know a tiny bit of a of of a rock or or metal or adjacent song that then gets a whole generation of people into that i mean the master of puppets thing in in stranger things you've got a whole generation of people now discovering metallica and while there may be some people kind of some old dudes who are upset about the the posers i'm just overjoyed that young people are listening to metallica And I don't care if they they discovered it from Stranger Things. I just want more people to get their foot in the door.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Do you ever get a chance in L.A. to go see any live music? I've got to imagine there's probably uh, any kind of type of music you would want. There's probably someone playing it somewhere.
0: Oh, absolutely. And it's one of my biggest regrets of living here. Um, I've always been... A bit of a, a homebody, and you know, big crowds uh, are just have never really been my favorite thing. If I'm ever at a live music event, a big concert, or anything like that, in the moment, I love it. But everything associated with it—the <laughs> the the crowds, the getting in, the leaving—is just has always been such a headache for me that it's difficult for me to overcome the inertia of going and when i think man if i'm listening to some music i'm like man it would be interesting to see you know if these people are going to be in la anytime soon i I must just have the worst luck and timing because i always have missed my favorite bands being in la playing at the hollywood bowl or something like that by usually about two weeks
1: Um, i'm
0: trying to get a little bit better at that there's a there's a great live music venue that's by the Cinestill office that is called Gold Diggers. It's technically like a bar, um, but they have a little, you know, a little stage there and a pretty good sound system and somebody who's who's mixing things well. Uh, above the, the bar in that same kind of building hotel complex, there's a recording studio. And I believe Leon Bridges recorded an album there last year. Um, okay. But it, it seems to just be a pretty a pretty hot spot there in L.A. for people to come and, and work out some new material to jam. Uh, I've been there a handful of times with the CineStill crew, but again, I feel like such an old man. Uh, <laughs> the busy nights where that tends to happen, where you know artists are coming there and working on new things, are Monday nights. And part mm-hmm. of that has been an overlap with the negative positive podcasts and um and another part has just been man getting my my ass out there to a place where the music only really tends to start at 9 30, 10 (laughs) o'clock is tough, man. I you know, I'm a little old lady. I (laughs) I get to bed (laughs) early, get up early in the morning. So you know, I, I hope to to dedicate a bit more time to uh live music at smaller venues in the future um i'm actually planning on moving back to north carolina in uh december or in january of uh of this coming year so with that hopefully i can find some venues that are a little bit you know more to my liking where the music starts a bit earlier in the evening
1: <laughs> right i can understand that i've uh, so i've mentioned before, I live in Birmingham, Alabama, which is the largest city population-wise still, I think, in Alabama, uh, which is not saying a lot, but it falls in this kind of sweet spot where it's big enough that most artists make it here at some point. So we're big enough for that, but we're small enough to where it's not like if you have to go to one of these venues you're in gridlock for a couple of hours that's so that's nice <laughs> to not yeah, have to yeah. get in with that
0: the traffic is already bad enough in la i went to a a friend invited me to a concert and i can't even remember now what it was but the entire thing was from start of us leaving to when we finally got back was almost the whole day and I think it was about 45 minutes worth of music. And oh, I was no. like, oh boy, I'm hard That's... pressed to do that again anytime soon.
1: Yeah, pretty big investment. Yeah. As we begin to work a little bit of photography into the conversation, <laughs> I grew up taking pictures, but it was all the photo album memories of family vacations or you know, Christmas or birthdays or holidays or just me and my friends goofing around. I didn't know anything about the exposure triangle or the creative artistic side of photography. It it was all strictly for the memories kind of stuff. So it was one of my early interests was taking these pictures and sticking them in the album and then going back and revisiting those memories over time. It was much later before photography became what I would call a hobby for me. And, of course, that was all digital for a decade until the pandemic hit. And that's when I sort of got back into film. And that was a full immersion of shooting film, trying different cameras, different formats, learning to develop learning to print all of these things and one of the things that I did as part of this education (laughs) into film was finding all of these podcasts and you tended to show up on quite a few of them Andre I think you you, of course you
0: had had to listen to way way more of my my voice than uh, the average human
1: no it's always been delightful But negative positives, obviously, of course, but Sunday 16 and analog talk and large format. I guess first, let's hear a little bit about how you got into photography. And then maybe we'll talk about kind of your journey through connecting with the community. Sure.
0: Yeah. So as I kind of alluded to before, I, I didn't really have... Um, photography was never a huge, huge part of my life growing up. Um, we obviously took you know picture my parents took you know baby pictures of us. I th- From what I've been able to glean from them, a large percentage of it was on disposable cameras. I think they might have owned some like autofocus point and shoots at some point, uh, but those were lost to uh, to history. I wouldn't inherit a family camera until much, much later. and Pretty neat one at that, but I'll, I'll touch on that later. My dad bought a, a digital point and shoot when we were in um, in middle school, a little Olympus, with a 20, uh, what was the, I don't know the actual focal lengths because it was probably like a teeny tiny, less than one inch sensor, but the, the 35 millimeter focal length equivalents was somewhere from like 28 to 75 mil zoom. And I remember taking that on family trips or at around that time when we lived in, in the Middle East, we traveled quite a bit. We, we got to know a good chunk of, of Europe, North Africa, Southeast Asia and uh, those those photos. Thankfully for my dad, you know, he's he's an engineer. He's very analytical. He's very, you know, careful with everything. He he did a very very good job at backing everything up on multiple hard drives, and then eventually once cloud storage came around. So my my whole thing later on once I started shooting film of like, oh well, this is so archival. Like you know, I don't ever want to lose like my digital images. <laughs> that that <laughs> right. wasn't as persuasive to to him because he'd be like, yeah, just back your shit up be responsible. (laughs) Once I, I, you know, graduated from, from high school and after a long history of, of hand-me-down flip phones, uh, whenever my parents would, would upgrade there's I finally got a smartphone that had a camera on it and really enjoyed just taking candid pictures of the, the friends that I made my freshman year, uh, Playing playing soccer on the weekends, uh, going out for, for ice cream, stuff like that. But pretty soon I felt myself wanting to have the ability to do certain things photographically that that tiny little sensor couldn't do back then. And, and keep in mind, this was back in 2014, 2015. We didn't have all this computational photography stuff that are in all the whiz bang smartphones of today, no portrait mode. You want a blurred background? Sorry, kid, get a real camera. Um, so that's what I did. I, I saved up some money and I, I bought a, a Nikon crop sensor DSLR that came with, you know, the generic kit zoom and a nifty 50 nice little 51.8 and that was the first time that I actually started learning about aperture and shutter speed and and all that stuff but it didn't last super duper long because I think I bought it on on Amazon um which that whole thing of Amazon versus uh camera stores and connecting <laughs> that to guitar stores uh, I'll, I'll I'll make that connection in the future but I ended up at this camera store that was in the neighboring town to Chapel Hill called Carborough, a wonderful town called Southeastern Camera that still exists to this day. And the first time I walked in there, like, that was the beginning of the end for for, for my digital (laughs) photography journey. To paint a picture, the outside sign kind of in that big glass, you know, window in the front is just lined with old cameras that... uh, those particular ones that are put up for display are the ones that aren't working. Um, (laughs) And then you walk in and one side of the store, you have all the whiz bang digital stuff, but in any kind of front glass display case is all film cameras of every shape and and size along one of the walls are these bins Mm -hmm. labeled with different camera manufacturers, Nikon, Canon, Olympus, Ricoh, that were all, they were the, the bargain bins. 35-millimeter SLRs uh, that were, you know, taken a look at, made sure that they were in, you know, more or less good operating order and offered at a, a discount rate, a kind of wall, a little cubby system on, on the wall near the cash register with all, you know, the the film that they offered. So as soon as I walked in there, I was like, okay, this is my second home. <laughs> Not too long after that, I bought a, a Nikon FE, you know, a little... 50 1.8 series e lens a brick of triax and a few rolls of fuji superior 400 brought that back with me to miami over spring break and took my my first few rolls of film just of my parents at home and at the beach and uh yeah it was such an exhilarating experience to not know if my exposure was right uh right to not be able to see my results right then and there, and then bring it back to the, to Southeastern camera, get it developed. And, um, the way that they did it back then, I don't know if they've, if they've modernized it since they had a Fuji frontier. And if you wanted scans, it would burn it onto a CD. By then the, the computer that I had for college didn't even have like a disk drive anymore, so I had to buy <laughs> a little <mobile, laughs> USB disk drive in order to see my scans right. and. It was it was that it was it was two rolls that I that I shot over spring break on on Superior four hundred, you know, a little grainy, uh, but just <laughs> right. a unique, just such a unique look and so different. And it didn't take long for me to sell that DSLR. It just didn't excite me nearly as much as as shooting film. And pretty much every every Saturday morning, I would I would be there, kind of waiting in the parking lot for. The general manager to come open, and I'd I'd leave around lunchtime. Like by the time that they were kind of starting, <laughs> to be like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna you know close the shop for lunch. I'd head out there and and did that for you know close to two years before I started uh, volunteering there a little bit. I mean, I was already there every Saturday morning anyway. <laughs> there were times where it was pretty busy, more customers there that needed to be attended to than uh, employees. So I was I was asked to answer some questions. I answered the phone a couple of times, and before I knew it, I was kind of sort of volunteering. Uh, eventually, I get I started getting paid in in store credit, which I wasn't complaining about. Simple enough on on the the part of my my manager to not have to do a whole bunch of paperwork. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a beautiful place, and it really kind of kickstarted my. My love for analog photography. I I I thank that place a lot for for that because I don't know where I would be right now um, if it weren't for for film. You know, working in in the modern analog photography products industry is a dream come true. And most of my friends I know from the film community, uh, you know, my my best friend, my my co-hosts on the podcast, like. Oh man, it's a scary thought to think what, what, uh, what life could have been without all that.
1: (laughs) That's right. And that was one of the things about hearing you on the different podcasts is that we got to follow along because it seemed like very early, you had kind of decided that you wanted a career in some way connected to analog photography, what is
0: Yeah, I knew it and I didn't know it, you know, Um, right. I didn't know that it it was possible, you know, in in my in my undergraduate business degree, whatever opportunity I had to Mm -hmm. conduct any independent research to tie something that we were learning to the modern, you know, film industry that I was just observing as a, you know, a a consumer, you know, I was buying film and, and looking at things like emulsive and watching youtube videos listening to uh, the early episodes of the film photography project podcast and and just trying to devour as much information as i could it it only really kind of came a little bit later on after i had to undergo open heart surgery to replace a a leaky aortic valve with a, a mechanical one and it points for for analog there well i guess you know your natural, your natural heart valve is still pretty analog, but
1: right. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> mechanical things, how they work it all. It's all connected. That's um, right. after, after that surgery, uh, where I had to take a, a semester off to recover, which kind of screwed up the whole like recruitment schedule at the business school, sort of like falling off the train and not being able to get back on, uh, type of thing. Right. Uh, and also just a whole lot of soul searching, um, it was tough i did feel pretty pretty aimless uh lots of late nights you know listening to music trying to figure out what the hell i was going to do with my life um Mm -hmm. around that time i had i had you know reached out as like a call-in to what was the very fledgling negative positives podcast (laughs) still recorded on anchor via mike's phone uh right but back in the day with Anchor, if, if people don't remember or if, uh, people have been lucky enough not to have listened to the first, I'd say, 100 episodes of the Negative Positives podcast, Anchor was a smartphone app prior to the acquisition uh, by Spotify, where you could put out a podcast by just recording it on your phone. Um, they would do all the hosting and everything. But their original restriction was that you could only record little five-minute segments. And you right. could attach three of those five-minute segments onto each other, but no more than that. So I won't say that that those restrictions are what caused the rest of our uh, <laughs> over-quality approach to the podcast, but definitely the first 100 episodes uh, came out in quick succession because of it. So I, I just submitted a, a call-in and uh, eventually was bugging Mike uh enough that he was like hey do you want to come on the podcast as a guest <laughs> and just was the beginning of a of a beautiful you know friendship i had a pretty painful breakup at that time and uh, wasn't getting a whole lot of sleep and mike as a as a ford factory worker with a night shift was more than happy to oblige uh, many a late night conversation and in one of these conversations he just said like andre i'm like i love you buddy but i'm getting kind of sick of you Talking about all of this film industry stuff and not doing anything about it. <laughs> Have you ever considered, you know, just reaching out to to any of these these companies? Because I still had, because of the whole surgery thing, I still had a after my my friends graduated a summer and then one other semester before I was going to graduate. So I I cold emailed a bunch of the of the companies that we know, and uh, the only one to get back to me you know, asking if they had an internship program was Sinistil um, had a, a conversation with the then CFO uh, unbeknownst to me on speaker with the two owners, the twins uh, right. in the background, just kind of sitting quietly. And uh, at the end of that conversation was uh, invited to come out there and just help out. However, I could, I, I thankfully had some some grant money from my scholarship program that was gonna help uh, with the the costs associated of doing that because they were not paying me. And uh, summer of 2018, I became unpaid intern slash individual number five at <laughs> Innistil Film, a company that I thought was so much bigger than it, it really was. Um, and even today we're, we're just shy of 18 people and Everybody always says that whenever we have an event or something like that here, or whenever I mention that Sinestil is just eighteen people, they're like, "Oh my goodness, I thought you guys were so much bigger." I'm like, "No," and not too <laughs> long ago, it was just four of them. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> and and yeah, the 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 rest of it is is more or less history. That I mean, that summer, a lot of cool things happened, like the launch of the DF96 monobath, the TCS1000 temperature control system. We picked up a new distributor in Europe, uh, and uh, you know it, it's been a a wild ride. Being able to help in all of that, to be a more active member of the industry side of things, I apologize to Mike, cause if he thought what I, I, if he thought he was getting you know an inside scoop into into new things coming out and a peek behind the curtain of the industry, I think he's been sorely disappointed by that. <laughs> but no, I, I, I love my job. Um, I run the customer service department and my whole kind of goal, uh, whether it's on the reactive side or the proactive kind of, uh, educational resource creation side of things is really to get people to, uh, love and understand film, um, and get good results early on, uh, quickly help them diagnose their own, uh, issues because, whether we like it or not, it's a consumables based industry. So all it takes is somebody trying out film and not getting good results, not understanding why and tying it back to the fact that this stuff isn't free for them to just give up on it entirely. So on both the proactive and the reactive side of, of things, if we can get people getting good results quickly, you know they're more likely to continue buying film and, and justifying to themselves, it as a form of of self-expression and and art. So it's going really well. I mean, I'm I'm thankful that you know I've, I've been, I'm now not only paid as an employee, <laughs> running running uh, one of the departments and uh, been able to you know start a a career in in this space and to help edu- and help bring other young people into it as well
1: right and so man you you touched on a lot of things there <laughs> and and i had questions about all of them i guess Oh, we uh, could go back i'm sorry billy <laughs> no that's it's all good so yeah let's go back to uh mike and negative positives in the anchor app just one question i had about that and you you sort of touched on it but yeah in those early 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 days, Mike was known to put out maybe two or three episodes in one night because because mm-hmm. of the time limitations and and his own enthusiasm for film photography at the time.
0: Oh, he also didn't have anything else better to do. I can throw him <laughs> onto the head a little bit. <laughs>
1: That's right, but but you did get in touch with him very early on. It was mm-hmm. he may not have even been. Ten episodes in, and that may have been like one week's worth of his output at that point.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. It was pretty. Pretty early on. I, I mean, I was, you know, hunting for new film photography related podcasts. I mean, I, I think every week I was just typing in film photography uh, podcasts into Google and seeing what was coming up. So. When uh, i right. popped up um, again, it 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 did originally sound like some kind of self help thing, <laughs> negative <laughs> right. positives. Uh, but once I you know I, I saw a little kind of blurb about what the episode was about, some pentax something. I mean one of, one sure. of Gutterman's
1: <laughs> late night drinking
0: musings. Um, <laughs> I was like, ooh, okay, let's let's give this a shot. And you know that uh that that slightly slurred. Kentucky draw grew on me and I decided to reach out and uh yep I'm I'm proud to call that man my best friend
1: That's right. And so that that was the question was just how you found him because I didn't I would not have thought that a podcast recorded on a smartphone app uh, from a guy's <laughs> garage in Louisville would be would be something you you know that would have been suggested. Of course, you, you know, Mike is if if nothing else a promoter of the things that he's interested in and passionate about um so the all the more reason you know that he puts so much effort i think early on into the podcast and and you know for what it's worth e- even though i wasn't listening at the time having gone back and listened uh you two were were definitely a good pairing i think
0: definitely i mean we we we've always been uh Blessed by having good on-air chemistry, uh, mm-hmm. helps that we're we're friends in in real life, um, which which is strange to say because I've only met Mike in the, I mean almost eight years that I've known him. I've only met him in person once. <laughs> it was um, it, it, if anybody wants to to have a good time if they're not familiar with the podcast, if you want to listen to me and Mike get really 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 drunk and uh, do uh, our first giveaway. Uh, listen to episodes 98 through 100. To give some context, at the time, right, I had gone through that painful, uh, painful breakup, and my spring break plans were kind of in the shitter. So Mike offered. He was like, "Hey, if if you're not doing anything, why don't you come down to Louisville and uh, spend a few days here with with me and my family?" And I was like, "Hold up, Buckaroo! You gotta you gotta run this by the wife." <laughs> because I'm not just crashing your place and then having to sit in that, you know, in that hot bubbling stew of, you know, spousal uh, angst. So (laughs) you run, you run that by Manette, And if she's cool with it, then we can move forward with this plan. Uh, Manette's wonderful. She was like, absolutely bring his, you know, his, his sad ass down here. So (laughs) uh, went out there and just spent, uh, I think, two three days with with them recorded what i'm you know proud and embarrassed i mean they're super sloppy and it was still in the very early days um so their first time doing kind of like a listener giveaway where people you know entered their giveaway and also donated a bunch of things for us to to give away um but every i would say once a year i i crack open some really shitty beer in honor of Mike and re-listen to those episodes just to, you know, connect to those, those early days. But, you know, moving back to the East coast, uh, I really do look forward to visiting Mike in person um, on a more frequent basis. It's uh, I mean, we're going to blink now and, and his, his youngest son is going to be heading out of the house, I'm sure. So You know, with the with the two empty nesters there, I uh, (laughs) appreciate some 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 younger company. I hope
1: (laughs) definitely. I would say so, and I and I also endorse anyone who hasn't listened to go back and and take it in in the spirit in which it was produced. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I mean, yeah, obviously, I mean, maybe the quality could the recording quality could have been a, a little bit. You know we we've got more technology around that these days but but you two are having such a fun time and cutting up and and i think there was that's been my sense it feels like from 2016 to 2018 and there's so much good podcast content out there now but the, that really felt like a special time and and again i wasn't living through it in that moment but you were what was kind of your some of your recollections from maybe that 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 window when things were you know it it just felt like everybody was super enthusiastic and and enjoying film photography and it wasn't just what you and Mike was giving away on, you know, episode one hundred and two hundred. and the whole community got involved and everybody was oh, yeah. donating and playing a part kind of, kind of what are some of your recollections from those first couple of years on the podcast?
0: I think you're right to have picked up on the fact that that was a pretty special time. I won't at all say that I'm jaded because I think that, there's there's so much room for the industry and the community to grow, but back then it still was very much kind of in its infancy. We didn't have as many podcasts out there or YouTube channels. Um, there were still amazing deals to be had on cameras and lenses few stocks hadn't yet been discontinued but at the same time new stocks were being you know put out i think the 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 darkroom print that i sent you billy was um was shot on the the then new 35 millimeter kodak p3200 which everybody especially you know music photographers and people who used it in low light were very excited for its comeback um right there was just so much to learn i think I mean camera models things like home developing like those seem to 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 me so much more a part of the the modern community there's so many resources out th- out there you know many of which made by by Sinistil that I've you know contributed to that I'm all proud of um but back then like you 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 had to figure a lot of this stuff out so the podcasts I think were so helpful in introducing people to Different concepts, or or just encouraging them to to give it a shot, um, whether that was home developing or you know pushing and pulling, um, scanning tips like you know what what scanners to get to to scan your film. The fact that we were able to get in on that early, I think, played a huge part of of feeling like we were involved in in influencing some of that, and you know, even saying that I'm kind of gagging in my mouth a little bit. Um, <laughs> But I, I do think that collectively, us, uh, of, of course, we were hugely inspired by Mike Rosso and the gang over at the FPP. You know, i all most of what I knew came from from sources like that came from me going to Southeastern Camera every saturday and and picking the brains of of the older guys that that worked there that you know, this was their life not that many years ago. We're in a different point right now. I won't necessarily say better because there are still some things that I miss about the older times, but the barriers to entry are so much lower for the person who is not as obsessive about it all as I was back in like 2015 through 2018. If you have a casual interest in this, there are... Still, some you know cameras at good price points, um, a lot of instructional YouTube videos, online resources that help, mail-in photo labs, or probably a photo lab in your neck of the woods at at this point. It couldn't be easier, you know, to get into. And I feel like I say this every year when I'm talking to people outside of the community when they're asking me what I do and why are people still shooting film and is film still made. But every year I say it's never been a better time to get into film photography. So, yeah, it's, you know, we're in the time that we are with all the, you know, positives and negatives of that. And if I ever want to kind of transport myself back into those days, I I can just, you know, go through my, my negatives or go through my scans here on my computer, pop open, you know, an old episode of the Negative Positives podcast, and I'm... I'm transported back in time to, to those days. I'd, I'd rather be in the here and now. I'm, I'm much happier where my life is at right now and where the industry is at right now than than a few years ago. But we're we're film shooters. We're we're lovers of music. We're nostalgic by nature, so right. I, I can't help but look back at at some of those periods with rose tinted glasses.
1: <laughs> sure, and you know, in the here and now. You're, you're not that young whippersnapper spending (laughs) half a day at the camera store or,
0: or,
1: you know, searching out, uh, building a relationship with, with Gutterman, you know, like you mentioned, we're, we're an old
0: married couple by now. That's right.
1: (laughs) You did eventually fulfill that dream and, and get on with CineSteel and, you know, there is a retail element. Involved and anybody who's ever worked retail, where you have to interact with the public, there's there, you know, are some parts of that that can, on a rare occasion, be unpleasant.
0: <laughs> yes, but
1: I, but all <laughs> of the film
0: service unpleasant experiences. What are you talking about, Billy? That <laughs> never happens. It's sunshine and rainbows.
1: That's right, but on the all of the film related side of all of that the you you know you're not the young guy trying to learn now you're on the other side teaching the people and part of your responsibilities are those educational opportunities where maybe you get to teach some a, a group how to develop film for the first time or lead a photo walk or you know answer questions from people who Call or email in. Kind of talk about that transition in your journey from being the student to becoming the master. I oh guess gosh. we could I, we could I, say. <laughs> I,
0: I, I loathe to think of myself as the master because there's still so many things with regards to uh, photography in general, art in general, um, that I I feel like I still need to to learn or hone. But I I am comfortable enough with my level of experience to feel like I can competently, you know, help in certain areas. Um, right. And it, it's been an exciting thing to start off in the reactive side of customer service and figure out what are the things that people are struggling with. And then trying to build some of those resources so that I don't have to be typing the same thing over 5,000 times and also catering to people who have different learning styles. So one of the big things, for example, was the the CineStill YouTube channel. We had started it a few years ago as a landing spot for a small series of kind of mini documentaries filmed by a very good friend of of ours, Brandon Leahy, out there in in Chicago, uh, just sort of profiling a few creatives that use CineStill to express themselves. But the YouTube channel, had kind of laid dormant for about two years. And uh, we, we made a big push to try to get back into it with the initial goal of putting out some inspiring and educational videos that would address some of the things that we were seeing pop up extremely often in customer service things like metering things like you know basics of developing black and white and color film at home um, identifying why my role of film is blank or you know the the source of these light leaks types of things how to load different film reels from different manufacturers all of these had already existed on on youtube we were absolutely not the first people to to do it but i always found like there were holes in some of those videos you know in in terms of fit and and finish i could i could watch a video about pushing triax with a you know a guy whose camera looks like it was a potato that he used to to film it with seven uh, you know 360p um (laughs) made in like 2009 and i'd still enjoy it but you know we, we wanted to put out something that 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 looked nice, you know, that could right. be shared on on social media and people would click on it and with thumbnails that were attractive and all that jazz. And that was a huge uh, kind of challenge a year ago was I, I spent a good chunk of my time once I actually had a customer service team. So I, I wasn't the one answering every single question coming and I could kind of delegate those tasks largely to them and just help out when they when they needed some more in orientation and i spent the majority of my time writing scripts for these videos and then uh, script supervising on set and even appearing um, as the uh, on-screen talent for a few of them so just to i mean to rattle off kind of a, a few things here we did a video on how to use a film leader retriever uh why is my film blank how to perform a snip test to check the status of your your chemistry um, preventing and uh, avoiding water spots, like these, are all things that you know. If you did find them on YouTube at the time, the videos just weren't, you know, up up to what I would be uh, really wanting to send out to to people. So, just trying my best to put out the information that I wish that I had at the time. A lot of this stuff I had to learn through trial and error and my own mistakes and it's something i'm proud of Uh, we haven't done nearly as much of those kinds of videos this year but i do have some more that i'm i'm working on but really as i as i make this transition now back to the east coast and i'll be you know working remotely uh, i hope to have that be more a part of my kind of day-to-day tasks uh at Cinasil is is trying to find the additional opportunities like that for education. Um, given that now my my team handles the the vast majority of incoming ticket volume.
1: Right. Okay. Well, as as someone who does interact with the whole spectrum of film shooters, from people who it is their first roll of film to people who you know, grew up with it. It never stopped. I mean, kind of what is your, I, I, and maybe there's more insight to be had for the new, yeah. for the people that are just getting into it, but kind of what is your sense of the film community in 2023? Is it, I mean, I feel optimistic about things, certainly, but do you think the new people that are coming in are hooked to it the way that you were back in the day is it uh is this a big fad we're going through i mean what, <laughs> what's what's kind of your sense of things
0: peek into your crystal ball andre tell me what you see That's um, right. <laughs> no i'm 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 very opt optimistic there I, I will be honest in that for a few months there right at the beginning of the of the lockdowns you know it was a little scary, you know. I think there was uncertainty in every industry. You know, the factories that that help us on the finishing side of things were all shut down, and we we couldn't make film uh, for a little while. And that was a little like, hmm, am I gonna have to move back in with my my parents for the the second time now? Uh, <laughs> but uh, but no, I mean, we experienced a, an incredible amount of growth during the pandemic, and that hasn't really slowed down again i I think part of that is due to the fact that the people who have gotten into it have been supported by a body of resources that gets them to those good looking results quickly so that they continue to justify that that consumables based repeated purchase and that's the kind of cold and analytical business side of it on the more artsy fartsy kind of inspirational side people seem just as excited now as i think you know you and I were back then they're just more supported by it it's not it doesn't feel as much of a niche thing so maybe the people who are doing it just to kind of feel special and different and countercultural are a little upset but you know those are the kind of hipsters that get upset that like oh (laughs) I I listened to them like before they sold out and went mainstream so screw those people um (laughs) you know it's it's more the people who how however they found out about it whether it's an album cover uh of their favorite band that was shot on 800t which thank goodness is having a ton more now and 100% organically i'll talk about the cinestill sounds playlist a little later um yeah. or you know they're they're seeing film cameras around the necks of people on their college campus or the celebrities shooting it at the red carpet or anything, or basketball games being spotted with contacts, T2s and things like that. However, they get introduced to the idea that there was once upon a time, a picture taking medium before their smartphone. And that actually happens to still exist. They're getting into it and they're falling in love with it. And I'm all here for it. You know, we're, we're here to support them. Everything that we do as a company at Cinestill is to support the community. We try our hardest uh, to keep prices, you know, steady for as long as we can until it's no longer economically feasible. We try to innovate and put out new products that make things easier in every aspect of the workflow from shooting to developing to post-processing. We've been a big cheerleader for the digital camera scanning side of things and i've had to to learn that whole process myself again in scanning my entire archive because unlike my 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 father i was not great at backing my stuff up (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I'm, i'm i'm very bullish when it comes to the film industry uh there's still a lot more to come in terms of uh products be those film stocks cameras that are now starting to be manufactured i don't think we've ever been in a period of time where there's actually been as much going on on the camera manufacturing side of things Um, the the stuff that pentax is working on right now with their their compact film camera like i know it's not going to be cheap and i'm not the hugest pentax fan i don't have anything against them but you know i'm not the the, the the flag-waving pentaxian that that gutterman is but i know <laughs> that it, it's gonna be like a, a matter of sort of like a sense of duty and voting with my dollar that i will buy that that new pentax camera when it hits the market because i want to support things like that continuing to happen in our industry and um i mentioned on the uh The Camerosity podcast that uh, one of my goals is to buy a new Leica MA at some point and have the bottom plate engraved with some, you know, some sappy uh, message or maybe just maybe just the date or something like that to commemorate, you know, some big career milestone within the industry. Um, I hope the Pentax doesn't cost $5,000 like the MA (laughs) but. between those two cameras, i I will feel very, very proud when i can I can look at my shelf of cameras and be like, all right, all these are great and I love them. but those two, this is the representative example of of the industry that i I work in and that I'm proud to to be a part of
1: right. Well, and so however, things looked at the very beginning of the pandemic, I mean something that was pretty exciting that happened <laughs> was the getting to be involved during the whole 400d you know the 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 campaign to bring it to life and then when it actually did come to life and then every you know everyone i have heard you know talk about it have have had great experiences with it. I mean, kind of what was that like to get to participate in that effort?
0: Uh, with, you know, I, I'm not gonna lie, my initial, I was excited about the film. We had, we had you know, passed around several roles of like the alpha version um, at, at CineStill and I, I loved the look of it. For those who aren't, you know, familiar, it's our relatively new, came out last year, 400 speed daylight balanced uh, film. You know, based largely on motion picture technology, but borrowing a little bit from uh, the motion side and the still side, combining some of those technologies together, thanks to our our good friends at, at Eastern Kodak. But uh, again, with no remjet layer, so you do still have that kind of characteristic cine halation around overexposed, in focused specular highlights. <laughs> to get all <laughs> all the technical terms uh, correct. But yeah, I I will admit though that I was a little worried about the format of the crowdfunding campaign. We had assisted some of our other friends in the industry with the fulfillment of some Kickstarter campaigns in the past and uh, they're always exciting but they're challenging from a logistics and customer service standpoint. Running it ourselves, it went a lot smoother because we learned from some of the from some of the not mistakes of the past, but things that that proved to be headaches. So it went it went a lot smoother than uh, than those ones that we helped out with um, the 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 lab box here in, in north america we we helped fulfill that as a part of a a partnership with Arsimago. Naturally, with anything crowdfunded wise, there is an element of delays and trying to communicate those delays uh some not super happy people <laughs> to have to kind of <laughs> handhold and be like don't worry we haven't scammed you like <laughs> uh <laughs> please be patient all that stuff try not to throw you know our industry partners and subcontractors under the bus that being said you know we we're still waiting on the 4x5 we're hoping to have that soon it's in the final stretch i mean it's been uh, it's been hung up right at kind of the end stage of, of packaging for months now, and we, and we recognize that that's been very frustrating to people. Film photographers are a patient bunch in general, but you know people's patience do, does you know run thin. So, right. But overall, uh, it's been it's been a really really positive thing. I'm I'm so delighted at the positive uh, reception of 400D. Timing wise, with Pro, Fujifilm Pro 400H being discontinued and global demand for Portra 400 vastly exceeding um, supply. Uh, a lot of people have embraced 400D, and you know we we know that it's not cheap. We know that it is not everyone's cup of tea with regards to the halation, and there are you know alternatives to it now. It, you know, just in terms of other film stocks at different speeds, or you know, different unique uh, options like the Atlanta Film Co stuff, with that right. uh, really unique partnership with Kodak Film Lab Atlanta, to where I'm more than happy to to tell people like, you know, if 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 you don't like calation, here's an option that I can say is actual true ECN2. I hope and hope and hope that nothing catastrophic. Happens with the, the 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 process that they use of splicing the rolls together because um, we experimented with a little bit of that at Cinestill a long long time ago um, and Bill is a dear friend and I wish him all the success in the world. There's absolutely a place for both Atlanta Film Co. and Cinestill because of people's different preferences for the the unique look that Cinestill has had due to the removal of the REMJET and the lack of that halation caused by the uh, the REMJET still being on there and processed in in a true Kodak ECN2 roller transport machine at uh, Kodak Film Lab Atlanta. Um, it's one of the things that I am actually very proud of in the industry is that most of the people who work at these companies know each other. I would like to say that we're friends. Um, in many cases, we actually are. <laughs> uh, it does not feel like a zero-sum game or it's cutthroat or anything like that. Back when Photokina was still a thing, it was great because, you know, you could actually, you know, meet everybody and have a beer. It's It's been a little trickier now that there's not one large industry trade show. Things have sort of splintered off into more regional things. There's the photography show there in Birmingham in the U.K., not your Birmingham.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right
0: there have been some, some, you know, regional things here in the U S uh, I think Bill's trying to work with, uh, imaging USA to have some kind of big analog, uh, component to that, that trade show. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's all been very positive in the past few years in the industry and in the community. Um, and I just hope that that continues on forward. Uh, somewhat selfishly because I don't want to stop shooting film anytime soon and I don't want to transition careers uh but also because I I know that there's still so much more room to grow both at Cinestill and at all of these other companies like we we've all got things that we're that we're working on that we're excited to release
1: that's right well it just seemed like you know as someone who had aspired to work in the industry and then to be a part of some you know bringing something new to life would be just a really cool experience you mentioned Camerosity, and they had uh the gentleman whose name is escaping me at the moment but used to work for kodak and played in important uh, robert well, yeah exactly and you know he gets now to look back on his time there and and his work in developing those films and for you to have that opportunity you know maybe let's you know hope 50 60 years from now people are still shooting 400 D, and you would be able to look <laughs> back and say hey i had you know i was i played a part in that would be very cool oh
0: well, yeah i mean there was there was a period of time where you know at, at the beginning of my time with cinestill one of my tasks every morning was, uh, you know, loading thousand foot cans of motion picture film, uh, you know, the, the already, I mean, finished product, right. What you would load into like a big Panavision or, or RE camera, uh, into the machine that the twins built in the back of the, of the CineStill studio slash darkroom, uh, to remove the remjet layer from it. And, you know there's there's a few hundred feet of of, uh, of film that i've ruined in in the past but you know for a very short amount of time uh every role of cine film had technically passed through my hands in some early raw materials <laughs> stage we're, we're long long past that but um, right I, I i can say that with 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 pride <laughs>
1: and so one of the other things you mentioned was the digital scanning workflow Mm -hmm. and cine still has released uh some things to help with that but then on your own personal side of things you recently got a new camera for (laughs) using for that purpose is that right
0: yep after the the nightmare that was using an older dslr for, for 700 rolls of film, I picked up something that would uh, would help me a little bit. Um, for those who aren't familiar with the digital camera scanning workflow, uh, the traditional way for many, many years in the, in the community to digitize your film, if you weren't having the lab do it, was using a flatbed scanner. Looks very much like any kind of document scanner that you would use, and they, they pretty much were document scanners that then the manufacturers added some additional features and film holders so that you could digitize your 35 millimeter, 120 mounted slides, four by five, depending on model. They work great, quality is wonderful, depending on, on model, but the main thing that they all suffer from is that they take so long to scan. I remember spending hours and hours just trying to scan a few rolls of film over the weekend you know, back hunched over at my desk, connected to the flatbed scanner. Um, And digital camera scanning isn't at all something new. People have been using, you know, the negative carriers for their enlargers. Um, Digital cameras and macro lenses and LED light sources or flash, uh, you know, speed lights in order to take backlit pictures of their negatives and convert them in post-processing software for as long as digital photography has been around. Uh, What has been innovated on in the past, I would say, three to five years are some of the components of that workflow that just make your life easier. Uh, On the film holder side, you know, not using the negative carriers for mold enlargers. Now we've got, uh, I mean, CNC machined, 3D printed or injection molded options, all of which are trying to get at the same thing holding your film nice and flat, oftentimes using a double S curve to sort of flatten out any planar distortions. Uh, And you hold that negative flat over a light source. These days, we've got plenty of really bright, high quality LED light sources, holding the camera up steady above the thing. A tripod works, but is honestly just a bit of a pain in the ass to have to kind of adjust and raise and lower the height. So, you know, people were using copy stands that were done for, you know, made for reproduction work. Now there are copy stands that are specifically designed for digital camera scanning. They're just as high as they need to be and no higher. trying to minimize the footprint so that it's not taking up a tremendous amount of space in your uh, tiny apartment or on your desk. <clears throat> so all of these things together and, oh, sorry, not, not to mention on the software side, several different options, both uh, Lightroom plugin based as well as standalone software that aids in that process of converting the raw file of the backlit negative into a positive image that you can then do further corrections on. I'm by no means a digital post-processing whiz, so having some of these more user-friendly options like Negative Lab Pro, like Film Lab, uh, has been a huge boon in terms of uh, that workflow. What it looks like these days, I pretty much just have my setup sitting on my on my desk in the living room at all times, the same way that I had my flatbed scanner there once upon a time. And I can divorce the image capture side of things, actually taking the backlit pictures of the negatives from the image processing side. So as, as soon as I'm done taking the pictures of that roll of film, which takes as long as it takes to take 36 pictures and a digital shooter, you know how quickly you can spray and pray. Uh, <laughs> I right. can then disconnect my computer from all that, you know, hop on the couch and watch Netflix while I'm, you know, making the conversions and taking out dust and keywording all my stuff uh, in my pajamas. So that, that to me has been, honestly, even more so than the speed, the biggest benefit when it comes to digital camera scanning is that I can just separate those two halves of the equation, you know? Right take all the pictures on Friday and then Saturday morning, go to a coffee shop and work on the files there. Right. It feels more like, you know, I'm, I'm working with digital because we are when we're scanning, but I've, I've never been happier when it comes to scanning my own film because I'm gaining back so much time that I, I used to spend.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can, I, I have, I have not, tried the digital workflow myself yet i'm still i early on got the very popular epson v600 and it is still Mm -hmm. working for me but like you mentioned you're kind of tied to it while you're engaging in that process and also the really neat thing about uh, the other workflow i think is you can always you know get a different camera with a better sensor or buy a new lens or what have you Mm -hmm. you can you can aside from the innovation that other companies are investing into that process you can tweak and customize your approach to fit your your taste you're not kind of uh locked in to that single flatbed solution
0: (laughs) oh yeah like and, and to give you an example of that right I was not able to travel back home to Brazil to see my family during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so spending the holidays here by myself, I was like, all right, great. Well, I'm going to take advantage of the time off and rescan my entire archive. I didn't have a digital camera at the time, so I went on KEH. Um, great resource to buy film cameras, by the way. Right. Um, they have a wonderful return policy and whatever their grading system is oftentimes uh, very much in your favor. I've bought many a bargain grade camera that looks newer and in better condition than, you know, uh, near mint, excellent, plus, plus, plus. Uh, <laughs> on, on <eBay. laughs> but so I went on eBay and bought a, a Nikon D700 for about $250. I wanted to spend as little money as, as possible, just for my own purposes, but I also wanted to see you know, what would this be like this whole process. What are the results going to be like from pretty modest equipment so that I have that understanding. Of, of what some of the customers that I'm helping might be working with. We have some you know, modern Sony and whatever it is. Um, can, can you tell that I'm not a, a, a super duper digital <laughs> uh, at, at the office, we, we've got some Sony thing at the office. Um uh, that's great. Right. It's a, a bajillion megapixels. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's wonderful, but I also didn't want to buy, you know, another external hard drive. Yeah. I had this old one terabyte or I had these two little one terabyte, um, western digital uh, external hard drives and I just wanted to spend as little money as possible to get the equipment that I needed in order to work on this process and in about two weeks I did close to 400 rolls and granted that was like several hours a day for multiple consecutive days which burned (laughs) me out pretty pretty hard Um, it took another five months for me to do the the remaining 300 rolls. Just I did a few when I felt it felt like it, and now I've upgraded to an actual mirrorless camera, the Nikon ZFC, which very much looks like a an old Nikon FE FM uh, patterned camera with the dials on the top and a little articulating screen on the back that I put a <laughs> I, I taped. You know, like the ends of the the box of thirty five millimeter film, where some cameras have that right. little <laughs> reminder thing. I pretty much just gaffer taped a little piece of little double X uh, on there because uh, the camera really does like if if you don't know what you're looking at, or you know if if you if you kind of squint a little bit, it looks a lot like a film camera. Right. So if I were ever taking a picture, you know, in, in public doing some street photography, and someone were to yell delete that i can kind of turn it around and, and show that the back screen is is just leatherette and then that little <laughs> double x you know film box reminder thing i like, oh no it's a film camera man i'm sorry i can't delete it <laughs> um and right. i've been really enjoying it i've uh I, I brought it with me to to florida just now over the the fourth of july weekend and i, I shot a, a, a you know i'd say maybe like one third digital two thirds film and aside from you know all the benefits that it has for the digital camera scanning side of things, I, I am grateful that um, I'm starting to get back into digital because I, I did find that there were times when the limitations of film would just make me not take the picture. Um, mm-hmm. th- one of the cameras that I almost always have on me is my little Olympus XA with the side mounted um, A11 flash. And I love how pictures out of that thing look. It's almost always loaded with CineStill BWXX rated at 400 and pushed one stop in, in processing. And in low light, the, the, that direct on-camera flash look looks great, but I don't always want that look, nor do especially my parents want to be continually flashed in the face throughout the evening. So being able to, once I started losing the light and popped off like one or two shots with the XA to then pull out the digital Nikon and continue shooting almost silently, getting those candids, knowing that like, I'm not going to darkroom print those, but you know, that's not the end of the world. Or maybe I could experiment with trying to create digital negatives and, um, you know, print them out on transparencies and, and something like that. But you know i'm 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 trying to broaden my horizons a little bit there's still a lot of cool stuff to be had in the world of digital and i'd rather have those pictures in digital form than not have those pictures at all especially now that i'm a lot better at kind of backing things up having had to come up with a system for the archive
1: project right okay well and um, when before we get too far away from it you did mention cine still sounds earlier and i wanted to ask about that you know for a music and photography podcast i mean 800t feels like in general for anyone who's ever shot it or seen images from it i mean it's a natural for concert photography i would think not just Mm -hmm. because it's higher speed but the aesthetic of it itself but that's not what cine sounds is all about is concert photography but there is a musical (laughs) connection there so oh absolutely talk, 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 talk about how that kind of grew organically and evolved
0: sure um I mean, Sinistil has always been intimately connected with with music. Uh, the the two founders of the company, Brandon and Brian Wright, have had a a record collection since they were were kids. Uh, it's it's located at the Cinecito office because neither of them wants to take up all that space in their own homes. <laughs> <laughs> and we we do regularly put on records at, at work um, as well as just you know connect our our phones to the the speakers via Bluetooth. But music has always been a huge, um, a huge thing for them. They actually did, prior to starting the company, they did a lot of, you know, professional work in the music industry there in LA. They've shot countless uh, album covers over the years, and eventually, once they they started Cinestill, they would give out roles of of film to you know people who still worked in those. In those areas, so since the beginning, like you mentioned, live, you know, gig and concert work has gone, you know, hand in hand with with 800T because of the speed, because of the look, and uh, organically, it's just you know always been there for us. A lot of you know people's first things that they shoot on Cinestill are gas stations and <laughs> and uh, music concerts and uh, one thing that kind of came up uh, sometime last year was uh, the idea of us trying to kind of curate some of these examples of synil's connection with with music but rather than you know just having like an image based uh, album or playlist or anything like that, The idea came up of like, well, why don't we make a Spotify playlist of singles, EPs, or or albums where the cover was shot on on Cinestill? And you know, there were so many more than we could even remember. uh, But we put out a, a few, and we encouraged you know people like, hey, if your artwork was shot on Cinestill, like please reach out to us, and we'll add we'll add it to the playlist. And that's been going really, really well. It's a, it's a, it's an extremely diverse uh, set of, of, uh, of songs on there, um, and it, it, it makes for what I was mentioning kind of before how how I find it sometimes difficult to discover new music. It's been great because <laughs> periodically you know I'll just I'll just throw that on Spotify and just enjoy how eclectic it all is. <laughs>
1: That's right. So, you talked about the the one of the other things you mentioned that I wanted to ask you about was the M A that you mentioned when you were on Camerosity. <laughs> and it and it's sort of I, I mean one of the sp- specific points about that right is that the M A doesn't have a meter. <laughs> mm-hmm. You you could have said the M P at the time oh. or now the the re released M six. Um, <laughs> but it's but it's this this uh completely mechanical nature of that. And and it turns out, you know, you you have an appreciation of finely crafted mechanical things, whether it's cameras or watches or aortas or <laughs>
0: <laughs> I hope is well crafted. I hope it lasts a long time without need for the CLA.
1: That's right. I just I was just wondering if i mean talk a little bit about that what what is it about sort of is it the craftsmanship or the design all of the things that go into your appreciation of these things that aren't maybe soulless and completely electronic
0: (laughs) i mean right a a lot of hard work in design you know manufacturing goes into electronic devices and we all use them right our 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 appreciation for them should not go without mention my ability to do almost anything is is reliant on them and, and the forms of communication that i use to engage with uh the communities i love so much is all dependent on that that being said there's just something so you know ineffable about mechanical somewhat anachronistic things that bring me joy i try my best to figure out how they they work but i'm not the best in terms of like spatial reasoning so some of the kind of finer details of you know timing escapements be they in like the 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 shutter of a camera or a mechanical watch start to get a little fuzzy the the more closely i i look at them but i've you know i've I've always had some kind of an attraction to uh mechanical things putting things together uh or taking things apart and then struggling to put them back together you know i'll never be a watchmaker or a camera repair technician i don't think but it's it's something that i i appreciate the connection to the past a lot i know that we have solutions for these things be it the telling of time or the you know the creation of visible images that are so much more advanced than these technologies. But I, I appreciate being kind of injected back into the past, struggling with the limitations that that people were, were forced to embrace back in, in the day. And there is something about that that I think unlocks some creativity. I mean, when it comes to to music now, be it you know, guitar amp plugins, which are, are kind of like the film simulations or Instagram filters of of the music world, um, right. everything is already sampled, you can just with a computer, make any music you, you want, there's something special about plucking a string, pressing down on a, on a piano key with a hammer that's hitting a, a, a string. Um, I don't think that stuff is ever going to go away. the the digital side of things has thankfully lowered the the barrier to entry to, to to timekeeping image making music production and I'm so thankful for all those things because back in the day it was it was difficult for some people to have access to those kinds of things that being said I'm I'm comfortable with the fact that the more analog side of things just by its very nature and the fact that it can't reach certain uh, economies of scale will in the current day and especially more so as we're moving forward become somewhat of a a luxury you know that's that's unfortunate for some people who uh, moan the increasing cost of uh, cameras mechanical watches whatever um right but you know they're they're always going to be there if you if you want to explore them they're not going anywhere there's something about the human spirit that i think appreciates handmade or doesn't even necessarily have to be handmade the 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 contemplation of Millions of tiny physical parts, that one, even once upon a time were, you know, designed and, and and somewhat handmade, working together in conjunction to solve a a task, is somehow more analogous to people working together than the more abstract zeros and ones and resistors and integrated circuits. Um, I'm I'm sure to some electrical engineers, that's, you know, the binary code tying all that together looks like some, you know, sheet music and an orchestral piece. To me, I can't think that way. Um, Right. You know, my my cognition is is limited to, okay, I can see how that gear is interacting with that gear and pushing that thing in there. Um, So... For whatever any of that is is worth, uh, analog things are always going to be a part of my life. And I appreciate now that some of the the more digital things supplement those in, in certain areas where they struggle. Electronic light meters, uh, like that MA, for example, I don't want a meter in that camera. I want it as, you know, virgin and mechanical as possible, but... <laughs> you can bet your ass that i'm using a spot meter with that thing <laughs> uh, so there there's a place for these things to play together very very well um and uh yeah it's 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 just something where you know i i look forward to you know people embracing both because i think that life can be made richer with the marriage of analog mechanical things and their electronic digital brethren
1: right well and i like the way that you tied that together with the music and photography andre i think that's probably a good note to to wrap up on (laughs) but i i mean i definitely appreciate you sharing all of your experiences with all of this how can how can people uh, follow along <laughs> with your with your non Instagram photos?
0: <laughs> well, at the moment, and again, people people who listen to Negative Positives for a while know my kind of. Uh, hot and cold relationship with with Instagram, but I'm actually in a period of time right now where I'm really enjoying it. I'm not posting a whole lot, but (laughs) I I managed to separate out my interests in three different Instagram accounts. So for the more kind of gallery focused, film photography based things that's Andre on film, for the more like less serious, just kind of documenting of of life stuff, it's Andre.snapshots and then um all the kind of watch related stuff is anachronistic.life on instagram and i try to keep kind of those conversations a little separate i have my watch friends on the watch account i've got my film friends on the film account and then all like my normie friends who don't care about either (laughs) are on the third count
1: all right makes perfect sense well i i do appreciate it again andre and uh certainly look forward to seeing uh more developments
0: no pun intended
1: that's right (laughs) special thanks again to andre dominguez for taking some time out to chat and share his perspectives on music and photography you can, of course, hear Andre on the Negative Positives podcast and check out the Citadel YouTube channel to see what all he's been up to. Our theme song Timeless is from Mike Gutterman. Mike's music for creators is available via his Bandcamp page at mikegutterman.bandcamp.com. You can get in touch with the Sunny 16 team at sunny16presents at gmail.com. And as John Whitmore might say, always try and be a decent human being.